0: Brooklyn Bridge Park has become a popular destination for locals and tourists alike in New York City. The park offers spectacular views of New York Harbor, the Brooklyn Bridge, and the Lower Manhattan skyline. But not too long ago, the area was an industrial wasteland. A new book explores how the eyesore became an urban wonderland. It's called Brooklyn Bridge Park: A Dying Waterfront Transformed. Joanne Whitty co-authored the book with the late journalist Henrik Krogius. Joanne is a lawyer, environmentalist, president of the local development corporation that developed Brooklyn Bridge Park's master plan, and vice chair of the Brooklyn Bridge Park Corporation. Joanne is our guest on this week's Cityscape. Joanne, thanks so much for coming in.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So for those listening who have never been to Brooklyn Bridge Park, why don't you describe it for us?
1: Well, you can see it from the Brooklyn Bridge. Many people like to walk the Brooklyn Bridge these days. If you look down either to your right or to your left, you'll see parts of the Brooklyn Bridge Park. It starts at the north at J Street uh, in the Dumbo area of Brooklyn, which stands not for the animal, by the way. It's down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And it goes under the bridge, actually under the Manhattan Bridge, under the Brooklyn Bridge, and all the way down to Atlantic Avenue, which is the separation between Brooklyn Heights and Cobble Hill. And it's on the uh, what used to be primarily uh, piers and uplands for the port of New York City. And uh, large parts of the, the park itself are on pier structures, which are sitting, their platforms sitting on pilings. Uh, and the area in Dumbo is at grade, whereas the area south of that is nestled under, essentially, not very close to the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, which makes a gigantic roar equivalent to a jet plane landing. And we have been building berms to reduce the, the sound levels, which have been quite effective. It's um, I will briefly describe what happens when you start, let's say, walking From Atlantic North, you first come to Pier 6, which has um, a dog run and um, amazing playgrounds designed by our landscape architects and um, built by some very creative uh, landscape and and, uh, playground designers in Europe. The whole town in Europe, uh, I believe it's in Denmark, is devoted to creating playgrounds, which was such a fun idea. And these are called things like Swing Valley, and uh, the we have a water play area, we have swings, we have climbing, uh, we have sand, and always busy. On Pier 6, we also have uh, volleyball sand volleyball courts. We have a place to get some pizza. We have the most uh, exquisite fields of flowers that have just gone in relatively recently within the last year. You can just wander there. And there will be beautiful flowers most of the year. Heading north, you come to Pier 5, which has got uh, soccer fields, which can be repurposed for any other sports uh, that are um, are permitted. And they're also used by local universities, busy all the time with lights at night and lots of leagues. Going further north, we have what we call the Picnic Pavilion, which is uh, really a cool spot that has a place for people with grills, uh, very unusual in parks, uh, stationary grills, and it's first-come, 1st first serve. and families are there all the time having picnics. Pier 4 is essentially underwater. It used to be a railroad bridge, and it's now uh, a beach, um, very beautiful beach. And going further north, 3 is under construction. It's going to be a passive pier with a lot of beautiful places to sit. There's also a fishing from the end of our piers, um, and we've got little sinks where you can actually clean your fish, although it does say if you're pregnant, you shouldn't eat the fish. The mercury, of course. Exactly. The most interesting thing about the park, I would say, is, um, well, there are many interesting things, but one of the most interesting things is that the park uh, is very much a bottom-up enterprise. It wasn't someone else's vision. That was imposed on this park from the outside. It was really a community vision. Um, I was the president of a local development corporation created by our, our local elected officials to come up with a, a comprehensive plan for the entire area, which had been had been a commercial for many, many centuries, really, a couple of centuries. But it was no longer useful in the current shipping environment. It didn't have enough room for containers. And that's containerization is really uh, what the shipping industry is driven by these days. So the Port Authority, which owned most of it, was going to sell it for private development because they are a public agency and they have other needs for the money, including the PATH trains. And uh, the community didn't want that. They really wanted – eventually they said quite explicitly we'd like to have a park at a time when it just wasn't likely to happen because of the economy in Brooklyn in part and the economy in New York as well. Brooklyn at that time had no investment of any kind, a commercial private investment. And and the government was focused on revitalizing revitalizing the uh, the borough economically, and and it wasn't seen that a large expenditure on a park, you know, really for a local neighborhood uh, that was already fairly wealthy was a good uh, a good thing to do.
0: So what year are we in, Joanne?
1: Well, the in the eighties was when the Port Authority uh, decided to sell, and that was probably about nineteen eighty six. Eighty-seven, And those efforts were stopped over a period of 10 years by the local community, um, successfully stopped, but no forward motion on an alternative. And since you can't fight something with nothing, eventually the elected officials said, let's create this thing and try to try to come up with a plan that's viable, that appeals to all of Brooklyn. It's not just for one neighborhood and has has a justification for its existence that maybe promotes the economic viability of uh, downtown Brooklyn and becomes an amenity for a, an effort there that would be mutually symbiotic. So for a long time, it was really a stop, stop the alternative, and then In 1998, so almost 10 years later, um, the Electeds created this local development corporation, and our concept was to bring in all of Brooklyn to help plan this park and come up with a vision that really reflected a communal view, and and it worked beautifully. So how did
0: you do that? What was that process like in bringing in the community to make sure all of these voices were heard?
1: It's actually uh, not so easy to do, as you might imagine, especially when you have a local community that was very dominant up to that point and, uh, and had resources to, um, to express themselves. So what we decided to do, first of all, the composition of the local development co- Corporation was was much broader than the local communities, although it did represent them. It also represented the community boards on either end of the park, and those community boards reached all the way into Fort Greene and Clinton Hill, um, and on the south into Park Slope. So we substantially widened the net of people who would be participating, and we also included the Chamber of Commerce for Brooklyn which had a very strong economic interest here and um and we needed their support and so we had 15 people representing all of these different areas but we hired planners and then we um we started recruiting essentially people to come in and we we went all over the borough we brought in institutions that would have interest educational institutions colleges that would be interested in using the park as a resource Any other kind of schools? We went to the libraries. We went to um, to the. There were private schools, public schools. We had the public schools participating. Art institutions, BAM, uh, Brooklyn Museum, the Botanical Garden, the Brooklyn Children's Museum, the Historical Society. So it it was a really big range of people. Um, We so when
0: you have all of these diverse constituencies, how challenging is
1: it to come up with a consensus? It's quite challenging actually. But uh what what it does, first of all you have to have talented people leading these sessions. And and what it does, uh it I mean it could have been a camel uh, undoubtedly, but what 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 happened was that it allowed us to establish a set of parameters essentially for First of all, what people wanted and didn 't want we we asked everyone to come in and talk about what was important to them and and what what they wanted to see in the park, but also what they really didn 't want to see in the park and then we then we um, started to establish some parameters about what was possible, and that had to do with um, access to the park because it's it 's on the water 's edge it 's one point three miles long but it 's very narrow at that point. It was covered in concrete, and, and, you know, you would have been hard-pressed to recognize a, a site for a beautiful park at that time. And, but we wanted people to understand that they couldn't have everything. And getting them all in the same room, talking to each other, was very valuable uh, because they realized there were other people who had different views, and they were going to have to work that out.
0: How contentious, though, did it get?
1: It was definitely contentious. There were certain issues that were more contentious than others, and there were certain neighborhood rivalries that, that came out in the process.
0: Such as what? Well. Give me an example.
1: So, for example, the people um, south of Atlantic Avenue have always been upset about the fact that Robert Moses was successful in uh, creating a ditch to run the, the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway through their neighborhood, which divided it forever and Brooklyn Heights uh, although they're they're given credit for achieving a success it may well have been that it just was cheaper for Robert Moses to run the highway on the edge of the Brooklyn Heights bluff and he built a, a an ingenious engineering cantilever with two levels of, of cars going in each direction and then on top of it a beautiful promenade but it it I think it there's a history in, with a lot of these these neighborhoods, and uh the people from the south were not on on the site they weren't on the park edge, so they were concerned about access and and sharing uh, they wanted other people to share whatever burdens there were from this park because they felt like they'd already done their share and so if there was going to be if there were traffic issues parking issues, they didn't want to be the only ones to suffer that and Brooklyn Heights, on the other hand, was very protective of its historic neighborhood. It's uh, it's essentially a cul-de-sac. So all the streets end, and then you end up driving down Columbia Heights out of the neighborhood. And a lot of people talked about having a connection from Montague Street down to the park. And the people from the south were especially aggressive about having that connection, although the, the merchants on the street, didn't seem to care one way or the other, which was a little odd. But the people from Brooklyn Heights, as you might expect, were very, very negative. And this was something that they had fought from the earliest days when the Port Authority was first proposing uh, to put uh, housing down there through private development. They were talking also about a connection. And the Brooklyn Heights Association was very, very strongly opposed to that. What's interesting about that, of course, is that when Hezekiah Pierpont, for whom the street is named uh, in Brooklyn Heights, was a, a very wealthy man and lived in Brooklyn Heights on, on, on Columbia Heights, he himself had business interests on the waterfront, and he built a ramp down to the water. So you could go straight from Montague Street, down this ramp, to the water, and then there was a ferry there. And that ferry was there until the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway was built. And so there was a long history of a connection, but Brooklyn Heights didn't want that to be made again. And so that's an example of of a, of a community issue that, that was definitely based on where you lived. Also, the people on Juraliman Street... The only path to this park other than Atlantic and Old Fulton and then the Dumbo parts of the park are at grade is under the highway at Juraliman Street. And and it's a cobblestone street, and people there were very, very worried about the traffic and wanted to put bollards up at the end of the street. And other people – at one point, they wanted a wall, actually – opposite their street in the park, so people could not ever get in that way to discourage people from going down their street, which is in line with the 2-3 subway station. So um, that was a big concern of theirs all along, and it continues to be a big concern. But you're absolutely right. It was hard to get a consensus, but one thing that helped us get a consensus was that everybody understood that this was a last-ditch effort. And it was a choice of park or no park. If we didn't come together around a plan and agree on some common vision that could be marketed to the government, then the Port Authority was going to eventually dispose of these peers and the opportunity would be lost forever. And that takes us in a, a nice segue to how hard it is to maintain the consensus because once it became clear that we were going to have a park, it became much easier for, the, for people to criticize lots of aspects of what was happening. And because it was no longer park or no park. And of course, one of the issues that's been controversial more recently is to, in order to finance the maintenance of the park, the community agreed in 1992 to, they signed principles that um, that said it was important to um, to for the park to be self-sustaining and to also energize, bring life to the park. So to have active things in it. And those things would generate revenue and they would pay for the park. And at that time in 92, they talked about an 80-20 split. So 80% park, 20% something else to pay for it once it was built. And um, At some point when we discovered how expensive the marine structures themselves were to maintain because the water is more healthy in the harbor and there are more marine borers and other creatures that eat the wood. And when we discovered that maintaining the piers was going to be a lot more expensive and therefore we needed to raise a lot more money to take care of the park, uh, we had to reassess what the revenue-generating choices would be and we ultimately came to the conclusion again with with the community that housing residential residential development was the best choice first because it was compatible with a park as opposed to you know some kind of destination retail or commercial where people would leave at night, having eyes on the park, having people living there, a stake in in what the park uh what was happening in the park was important people going all the time, all year round. Also, the residential development generates the most revenue in the smallest footprint. So we were able to put development sites at each of the entrances, at the edge of the park. One site at the edge on Pier 6, one site at the edge on Pier 1, and one site at the edge around in Dumbo. And although people weren't particularly happy when we announced that, it was uh, was endorsed by everyone
0: what was the biggest complaint about putting up the housing?
1: I think um some people felt that uh, first of all. You know, is there housing in other? Why Brooklyn? Why does Brooklyn have to do this? You know, there's no housing in Prospect Park. There's no housing in Central Park, but there is housing along those parks, and there wasn't. In, there were. There wasn't going to be housing along this park because it was backing up against the BQE. So, and and in fact, there is always housing around parks. They tend not to be this isolated thing you go to that's far away, and so uh, I think. That was one one argument that you know Brooklyn's being unfairly treated. Another argument was that the, the housing would privatize the park, that uh, that people would start to. Uh, take more than a, than a stake in, in what was happening. And they would start to try to control what was happening and stop things that they didn't like and, and make it more a private park. And we gave that, I mean, that's that's a serious uh, and legitimate issue to raise. But our experience, first of all, our experience in, Hudson, in uh, Hudson River Park, in Battery Park, which is at the bottom of Hudson River Park, has been that that has not happened. And that those parks are are very democratic and, and people come to them and, and they don't feel like they can't come because there are people living there.
0: Wasn't there also upset because the majority of the housing would be luxury and not affordable?
1: That's actually a very interesting question. Um, initially, the idea was if you want to generate the most money – in, a, in the smallest space and you don't want to have any more buildings than you have to, then it has to be – it should be luxury housing because that way you can maximize your revenue. And nobody had any problem with that, actually. More recently, uh, we, we've already put up – the the development in Dumbo is open – the uh, development on Pier 1 is opening now, and the, there's a hotel there as well, which was always, again, part of the mix, and uh, that will be opening shortly. The piece that's left is on Pier 6, and um, when when Mayor Bloomberg left office, um, he left some money in, in the budget uh, to – to nearly complete the park. And when Mayor uh, de Blasio was elected, we didn't really know what he thought about the park. We knew him as a city council member from, from Cobble Hill and Park Slope, but we didn't know what he was going to do, and his focus was equity. And not surprisingly, um, he said that he thought we should add affordable housing to the project on Pier 6, which we thought was okay. Uh, and we we were able to negotiate with developers to to get them to give us proposals for mixed buildings uh in accordance with his desires and and hes in given that uh that agreement with him um more money was was released to be spent on the park. The argument that was made was that we obviously didn't need the money because if we could add affordable housing to this mix and take, essentially, less money from the developer, that our, all of our numbers then came into question about whether we really needed to build this. And, uh, and our, our neighbors, particularly the ones who lived in 360 Furman, whose views might have been blocked by this building, and other people, all from the south primarily, uh, people who lived on Juraliman Street people and people who lived south of Atlantic Avenue, many of whom opposed the park, the, the housing in the park from the beginning and sued us. When we were sued, the judge basically said that this was – this would not have been a park but for the housing. It was never – it wasn't like there was a park and then we said, oh, gee, we'd like to stick some housing in it. This wasn't a park. And it wouldn't have been anything if we hadn't agreed to the housing. And so he said he did not think it was a violation of any public trust. However, these people are now back with a new argument, which is, uh, well, you you said you would only build as much housing as you need, and therefore – Uh, You must not need it if you can uh, add affordable housing to the mix.
0: What about doing what other parks have done, like Central Park and Prospect Park, and develop a conservancy?
1: Well, we do have a conservancy, but it's a very modest conservancy compared to those. Um, The Central Park Conservancy has raised, I don't know, half a billion dollars or more in capital money uh, for Central Park over a period of time. And they get $100 million gifts. John Paulson recently gave them $100 million. They have very wealthy people living around Central Park now on both the west side and the east side. And they have worked very hard over the years to make this a priority for those people. And it's a very the, – the 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 organization, the Conservancy, has a lot of cachet at this point. It's It's a charity that people like to give to and in fact that the conservancy there um has an has an agreement with central park where they provide everything over 7 million dollars which is on the order of 40 to to manage that park so the city gives them 7 and the city oversees obviously um the person who's the head of the conservancy is also reporting directly to the parks commissioner but the the conservancy Um, pays about $40 million a year. That is a lot of money to raise. And that kind of money is not available in in Brooklyn. Because in contrast, the Prospect Park Alliance for many years wasn't that well-maintained either. And the alliance there was very modest and was primarily getting government money. They were raising a certain amount of, of money from individuals and foundations, but the big money was coming from the borough president, the city council, and it's only very recently with the um, with the skating rink and the uh, bandshell that they were able to get a significant amount of money from private interests. And I mean, our conservancy has been around really. Uh, there are, this conservancy is an organization that precedes the park. They were originally an advocacy organization that was advocating for a park. And during the planning, they were out there, you know, bringing people into the planning process and so on. And then they became a conservancy. But it's actually, a, it's very hard to raise private money in Brooklyn. And there are a lot of competing institutions now that are very good at it, like BAM and the museum. and. We just haven't been successful in getting a lot of private interest. So I think that is – we know that now, but I think we knew that before, and we didn't want to rely on a private entity because it's too iffy. And I think that the idea of being guaranteed this money um, on an annual basis and being totally within our control – so that we can decide what needs to be done with this park. And in the long run, if, 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 uh, if we generate more money than we need, then that money will go back to the city.
0: So that battle over that housing project tied up in court right now? Correct. So when did the first shovel, so to speak, go into the ground to build this
1: park? I think it was 2007, because we could not really build anything until uh, we got we brought all the land together because it was owned by the state the city, the port authority, we had to get all of the land together in under common ownership and then we had to do an environmental study and we couldn't uh, we, we couldn't do that that I and mean, then that took a while to get all of that stuff done but before that actually happened, I believe that the city just a little bit earlier transformed a park that it had at the foot of main street that was being used as a parking lot into a park that was adjacent to a small state park that was already there so we did get those two little pieces done before we had the environmental impact statement because we weren't changing the use they were both parkland but to really convert the piers which was the big uh challenge we had to do the environmental review, and that was done in 2004, 5, a little bit into 6. And Regina Meyer, who became the president of the park, what she there was no more groundbreakings. We had all of these little phony groundbreakings to keep the momentum going where we'd bring in a potted palm, and everybody would be cutting ribbons. But actually, she really, without any fanfare at all, just started you know digging and putting in the infrastructure we've got a sustainable park we we are collecting water in in uh, tubes and cisterns underneath to uh to recycle in order to water all of our plants we have all kinds of sustainable features we've t- when when we found a rotting platform that we, we decided we really didn't need. It was going to be too expensive to keep it up all the time. We just threw it away. And so our, some of our peers are only connected now to, to the real uplands by little, two little bridges. Uh, so you actually pass over water. You can see water. We've created safe water that allows you to go under those bridges. If you want to kayak there, that's all protected. And so we naturalized the shoreline really in a lot of places instead of trying to rebuild the, the hard stuff. And as a consequence, when Sandy hit, we, we did extremely well. And, and Mayor Bloomberg was commended us because we, we created an environment where the water could wash in and then wash out uh, without hitting hard things that it broke. And although we lost our electricity... Uh, at the carousel, we have a carousel in the northern part of the park. The, the um, we also have uh, Empire Stores, which is a historic building that's been that we used. That that is using a a brand new uh, system of keeping water out, whereas the tobacco warehouse, which is now a cultural facility, is built to allow the water in. So we've done a lot of very interesting things with native plants and habitat all to make this, in some ways, to recreate what was there a century ago.
0: Joanne Whitty, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Joanne Whitty is a lawyer, environmentalist, president of the local development corporation that developed Brooklyn Bridge Park's master plan, and vice chair of the Brooklyn Bridge Park Corporation. Joanne co-authored the book, Brooklyn Bridge Park, A Dying Waterfront Transformed. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boracke. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery
1: starts here.